Hello, listeners, and welcome to the fifth episode of the Always Drive podcast. I'm your host, Devlin Riggs, and I'm excited this week because now there are 100% more hosts of the show. I'm joined this week by my friend Mike Labazetta. He is the founder and chairperson and all sorts of things of the Faro Law Firm, which helps small businesses here in St. Louis. Mike, you want to say a few words? Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So uh, what do you guys at Faro do? What do we do? Well, uh, it's just me. I'm a super small firm, super efficient. Uh, as you said, I, I help out small businesses and entrepreneurs with their their corporate legal needs. Faro means lighthouse in Italian, and so I like to help guide you through the waters of business law. You're going to show us the way to ridiculous profits so that we can afford all the cars that we talk about. Exactly. Excellent. Well, let's jump right into the news. First this week, uh, Toyota and Suzuki have announced a new partnership, and it's going to take form uh, in the coming years. The language of the release says that they will be, quote, collaborating in environmentally friendly technologies, safety systems, information technology, and the mutual supply of products and components, end quote. Uh, now, you may recall that Suzuki's last car in the U.S. was the Kizashi, which um, I hardly ever see on the road, Mike. Have you ever seen any of the Suzuki Kizashis? I was unaware of its existence until you sent me the notes for this <laughs> podcast, and I looked it up and I said, nope, never seen that. It's honestly a pretty attractive car, and by all accounts, it was really good to drive, but yeah. it just it didn't sell. And I'm not sure if that was the name associated with it or what. Yeah, it, I mean, I think it came out in 2009, and that was already, Suzuki was kind of on its way out in, in the U.S., and I guess never had the momentum that it needed. Yeah, and I think one of the ways that Suzuki really stands to benefit from a partnership in this uh, with Toyota is that they are really way behind their competitors in terms of automation and technology. Um, so they'll, they'll stand to gain a lot there. And Suzuki also holds a, a strong market share in K-cars in Japan, um, I, I was in Japan a couple of years ago, and you see Suzuki's all over the place. And now you'll never see a Kizashi there, but you'll see all sorts <laughs> of small cars driven by motorcycle engines that you just can't get here. Right, and uh, you know, as we've seen, the the small, very small cars don't tend to sell well in the U.S. We we like our no, big saloons yeah. and sedans and and crossovers. And Holy cross shit, do we like crossovers? <laughs> uh, full disclosure, listeners, I have a crossover, and I am aware of Devlin's uh, feelings towards them, so I know what I'm getting into in this episode. But full disclosure, he also drives the best crossover, the <laughs> Mazda CX-5, and we always like taking it to the wineries, there so it serves a purpose for sure. Um, so Toyota, so if this seems like sort of a one-sided relationship uh, in the benefit of Suzuki, it's not, because Toyota really wants market share in India. And Suzuki has some market share there, but their uh, knowledge of small engines and technology uh, with relation to smaller CC engines, which will uh, be more likely to sell in high volumes in India because they're, uh, they're sort of cheaper, um, that, will, that will sort of help them. So there is a mutual benefit there. Yeah, and, and it, it sort of plays into this notion that, you know, cars have always been modular uh, thank you, Henry Ford. Mm -hmm. And uh, now with global brands, you can partner with brands that have other competencies than you do and, and other uh, market penetrations than you from you. And 
uh, just go from there and, and uh, help each other out. And we're seeing that a lot. And I think this is probably a little bit different than the the recent news with uh, Nissan Renault sort of rescuing Mitsubishi because Mitsubishi was really sort of on its last legs and wasn't innovating very much. So they stand to gain a lot from Nissan Renault, whereas uh, Nissan Renault didn't really stand to gain a lot <laughs> from that. But in terms of uh, other partnerships out there, like Toyota Subaru, we see that with the the GT86 and the BRZ twins, yeah. where it sort of uses Toyota's small car knowledge, but the motor from Subaru uh, to, to make a, a really cool little car. Uh, Mazda and Ford also had a, a longstanding relationship um, back in the, the 90s and early 2000s that... Uh, that saw a lot of different cars come through, uh, branded as Fords, but you knew they were okay because they were built by <laughs> Mazda. Yeah, that. Uh, well, and that co-branding thing is another thing. I guess we'll we'll get into. Yeah, exactly. Um, we're gonna move on uh, to our second story. Uh, it was released this week that the Truth About Cars uh, said that twenty four seven Wall Street is coming out saying that the book by Cadillac. Uh, monthly subscription service is a total failure, um, which seems a bit premature. It was uh, launched last month, I think it was. And basically, if you're unfamiliar with this, it's a $1,500 monthly subscription service so that you can use Cadillac cars basically whenever you want to. Um, right now, apparently, it has a wait list, so it, they don't have enough spots open to satisfy the demand. So... I guess 24-7 Wall Street's criticism is that Cadillac's not doing enough to meet the goal. It, it, this, this story baffles me from, from two directions. One, it seems like not even Cadillac expected people to want to drive Cadillacs. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're undersupplied in this market. And two, the, the point of this is you have a car right now, and to not have them available right now seems to it, – it's obviously a uh, stumble right out of the blocks, but um, – you know, there's. I think the the clientele they're going after. The these people have a lot of options in terms of uh, right. other brands, other other financing mechanisms, and so to not get this right immediately, I wouldn't go so far as the twenty four seven Wall Street to say it's a failure, but it's certainly a black eye on the program. Yeah, and I think if you're spending that much money. Uh, every month on a car service, which right now is only based in New York. You can't get booked by Cadillac in, say, Detroit or even L.A. But if you're going to spend that much money on a car service every month in New York, chances are you're not going to want to do the driving because driving in Manhattan blows. Yeah. <laughs> so you're spending a lot of money to drive cars that, I, I mean, the new Cadillacs are, are pretty okay. Um, yeah. they, they look good, yeah. but you're be dr the driving conditions are just terrible. Yeah, I, L.A. may have been a better market for this, where people, you know, drive more. Yeah, definitely. And, but I agree that 24-7 Wall Street, I think, is a little premature, because especially having the wait list that they do, it shows that there is some interest there. It's just not being well handled by Cadillac. So right. the program's not a failure if it's still generating wait lists so I, I just yeah, think that's I, a little... They just need to keep the those customers on the wait list. They need to keep their interest. Yeah, and that that's going to be a challenge. Uh, next up, uh, pony car sales. So sales of the Mustang, Camaro, and Challenger uh, were down 36% in January, year over year. And although January is normally a fairly awful month for car sales, 
It follows up uh, 2016, which as a year was historically low for uh, for muscle car sales. And the uh, although the Camaro was new last year, uh, it sort of is surprising that uh, we would see such a sharp drop off in sales so quickly. They've just moved this car over to the Zeta platform, which it shares with the the ATSV and the CTSV, and it's apparently a really fantastic car to drive. Much improved over the last model, which I think was a really good looking uh, Camaro, and I think the current looking the current Mustang is one of the best looking Mustangs around. Uh, but it, it's they've sort of shot themselves in the foot there, as every car manufacturer does by having recently announced the new Mustang. Yeah, I, I well, I think your sentiments are echoed by the market. By by all accounts, this is uh, the model that that the that people have appreciated the most since you know before the '90s for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, I think there was the the Truth About Cars article had a, a comment from Ford, and I think that's pretty telling that anytime they release a car like this, it's it has an initial glut of sales. And then it, it dives off pretty spectacularly, and that's just because people are waiting for that next model. They want that next iteration of the pony car, right. and it, it's a relatively small market. And then once that's satisfied, they have to move on to the next one fairly quickly. Yeah, it's almost like buyers are treating them like disposable razors, I guess. Well, but, I mean, that's that's one of the draws is they're, they're relatively inexpensive. You get a lot of power for it, and... Next model's going to come up in the next five or ten years. So yeah, it's. Uh, I think they're they're starting to be sort of a revolution, especially with the EcoBoost um, four cylinder Mustang and the uh, the V6 Camaro, which are they're pretty efficient for uh, for muscle cars and still deliver good power. Whereas these cars used to be very blunt instruments, yeah. sort of you know just raw V8s that you just cranked until they blew up on you, basically. Yeah. Um, so we may start to see these cars last a little longer, and I guess maybe what could be affecting this is the fact that the average age of cars on the road now is over 11 years. So we may see people hanging on to their cars a little bit longer, which is driving down sales. But uh, I read that Chevy has a, a five-month supply of Camaros, and F- Ford has a four-month supply of Mustangs on, lot, which, on lots, which is... I think auto manufacturers usually aim for about a month and a half, two months. So yeah, that's that's a lot of cars on a lot of land. Yeah, uh, what we could be seeing uh, are is twofold, really. We could be seeing massive incentives to just to move these cars off the lot, so you could be able to get a huge price discount on a new or yeah. uh, last year model uh, Mustang, Camaro, or or even Challenger, or we could see. Um, lines get cut at factories and the potential loss of even more manufacturing jobs well father's day and graduation's just a few months away so we'll see <laughs> so, if they tie in any sales for that yeah so wives and girlfriends and mothers <laughs> get on it right <laughs> all right next up um it came out this week that uh some brazen thieves were able to steal more than $3.5 million in Jaguar and Land Rover motors. And uh, I've read that this was has been called the gone in 360 seconds of capers <laughs> uh, because apparently uh, the thieves were in and out of the uh, facility in England in less than six minutes. And apparently they brought in a, a trailer, a truck trailer. Well, it's just a truck. 
they brought, to, in, the, they brought, they brought in, the in a truck to get the trailer, <laughs> which they knew was full of engines. Yeah. $3.5 million worth of engines, which, yeah. holy hell, that's Well, they did this twice. They brought it in once, <laughs> stole one trailer, came back, and did it again. Yeah. And you, you got to wonder, was this an inside job? I, in and out, they had apparently the papers to get past the security guard, or either the security guard was in on it, or didn't look at the papers very closely but they had some sort of papers and were in and out they clearly knew how to use a big rig um my father was a or my grandfather was a, a truck driver it's not that simple to hook up a big rig no like kidding. that it, and to do it in six minutes twice uh they clearly knew what they were doing and uh, this wasn't announced at the time but this also happened three years ago the same sort of thing oh, gosh. where People brought in a truck, got into the facility, and just drove off with a trailer. And there they got $1.5 million worth of engines, but the crime was apparently never made public. But in the wake of this uh, new report, I guess they're just airing out all their dirty laundry in the hopes that somebody <laughs> comes forward with some information. This this just seems pretty pretty sketchy. If, if really you suspicious. see uh, a listing on Alibaba for uh, <laughs> some, some Land Rover engines coming up here soon. Uh, you may want to double-check that. Yeah, I, I, I'm i sure they have the VINs stored somewhere so they <laughs> could check that information. But, uh, hey, if you're looking for a, a bargain bin Jag engine, you know, just keep your eyes peeled <laughs> and don't tell anybody. Um, also out of the UK this week, uh, the uh, so Autocar published a study by CarSpring, which uh, revealed the most and least depreciating car brands for sale. And we'll qualify this with, with that it was limited to the UK. So this doesn't apply a whole lot to America, and you'll probably see why. Um, because the uh, the car with the least depreciation, or the car brand with the least depreciation, was Mini, uh, which was followed by Audi, VW, and then Ford. All all British favorites. Yes, all all classic European cars, renowned for their reliability. <laughs> and and what came in last? The at the bottom of the list, and this is where it gets really rich. Were Honda. Toyota and perhaps a little more predictably Peugeot. <laughs> Peugeot. I, I'm actually surprised that wasn't dead last, given the uh, the traditional ribbing the the Brits give the <laughs> French. But uh, yeah, Toyota came in dead last, losing 75% of its value uh, after 34,000 miles. And 34,000 miles, especially when you're talking about Toyotas. I mean, they are just getting broken in then. I, I mean, I know that's a lot in Britain, where 34,000 miles is like 100 times around the country. <laughs> but, yeah, that's... I, I mean, mean I, I was looking uh, just casually at Forerunners the other day on uh, Auto Trader and, and Craigslist, and I actually found a Forerunner on Craigslist listed at something like six or $7,000. And it had 410,000 miles on it. <laughs> yeah, the only reason my Camry didn't make it to 200 is I got rear-ended at 197 and uh, totaled the car, basically. Yeah. And, I mean, it just boggles the mind that, that two of the least depreciating car brands here in the States would be two of the most depreciating car brands just across the pond. Yeah, and and then 
Audis are not known for keeping their value here in the States. So. No, I mean, you see cars like the Audi Allroad, which has a, a reputation as the least reliable vehicle of all time. Yeah. And it's no wonder why you can buy a uh, an A8 like three years after it uh, it came out, coming off lease, for maybe 50% of the original sale price. Yeah, I, I think the message here is don't buy a new car in the UK and go there for your used cars. <laughs> exactly. So all you people from the continent, you know, <laughs> just make that quick trip, especially before Brexit happens because who knows when you're going to be able to get over there next. It's super cheap now, I read, so get up there. Is uh, uh, Are they going to put up a wall or is that just here? <laughs> I think okay. uh, the Dutch are angling to build our wall, our seawall. Okay, that, that makes sense for them. Um, next up. Uh, Faraday Future, just how fucked are they? Um, <laughs> there are a couple of stories that came out this week. The uh, most kind of crazy is a story on Jalopnik about how Faraday Future have been sued over a domain registry for ff.com. Now, the lawsuit is uh, for, I think they said something about um, no less than $210,000. And if you... Read through the whole story, which I think you should, because it just takes so many wild twists and turns. I think that's that's not a lot that they're asking for. Yeah, it, the the story, like you say, is is crazy. the The management of, of Faraday Future essentially engaged this broker to go out and get them a domain. Uh, the one they settled on was ff.com, and at the time, it was owned by Bank of America. And at this point, they didn't even have a name for the company. They were yeah. just aiming for ff.com. It, it sounds like they were they liked the alliteration. So Which seems completely arbitrary. Sure. Uh, so they had a deal, and I assume the broker was to get some sort of percentage on top uh, of, of whatever they paid for the domain itself. In the end, that ended up being uh, $1.4, $1.5 million for the domain, which... Uh, meant that they own the broker like $210,000. The shady thing about this is that they never signed a contract with the broker. Um, I mean, that's kind of on the broker. I would definitely sign a contract. Yeah, and um, apparently a lot of the, the back and forth between Faraday and this broker was exchanged via text message. <laughs> and it sounded like they had this guy running all over the place, thinking of different names, looking up different registry options, negotiating deals, all via text message, all without a contract. Yeah, and and in the end, they they did him dirty. They ran around. They found out it was Bank of America that they needed to, to go to, and they just went directly to BOA and negotiated with them. Allegedly because it was taking too long with this guy, which I'm sure he contests. Of, of course, of course. But uh, as a lawyer, sign a contract. <laughs> Step one, sign Step a contract. Step one, sign a contract. Holy smokes. Yeah. So Faraday Future, uh, they when asked for comment, they said they cannot comment on ongoing litigation, which if you've been following Faraday Future, which means they pretty much cannot comment on anything because I mean, they're just constantly getting sued. It cuts their PR budget. That's true. They don't have to pay marketing people. That's right. Bad news for people like me. Um, <laughs> but they, they are promising that they will definitely totally be making their – Totally, completely real FF91, and also an FF81, which will apparently be a rival, a rival to the Model X. 
and those will both come out of their now one-fifth scale factory uh not not like model scale factory, but you know, if they keep going, it may be they it, may be actually talking about Matchbox models at this point. You know, at least we'd still have a solid product, True. so that would be more than what we have now. Uh, moving on, Super Bowl was uh, last Sunday, and there are always a bunch of car commercials at the Super Bowl. Um, this year's, I didn't think there was any particular standout, but. Uh, according to uh, Adweek, the Kia commercial with Melissa Car- McCarthy, which when I saw it just basically seemed like M- Melissa McCarthy screaming for 60 seconds and yeah. occasionally driving a Kia hybrid, uh, won their ad meter. So it was the most popular ad of the Super Bowl. She's funny. I mean, what can you say? She is funny. I love her movies. Uh, I, I didn't really get the... Uh, <laughs> the super positive vibes about the commercial, but, uh, yeah, you kind of forgot it was a car commercial. Yeah. She's fallen off of icebergs, falling out of trees. Little shout out to whale wars there when they're (laughs) going after the whaling fleet. Yeah. Uh, I mean, as, as an entertaining piece, it was good as a promotion for the Kia, I, I honestly don't even remember. I think it was the Nero cause it's their only hybrid car. Uh, not too effective, I think. Right. Um, other ads, uh, Alfa Romeo, they splashed big on commercials for their Julia, um, which featured a lot of Italian colors, a lot of loud exhausts, and a lot of aggressive driving, which it, I loved. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's great for for gearheads, for petrol heads, but it's really hard when your brand identity is. Just, just just buy it it's the feeling it gives you just buy it it's it's really hard to make a cohesive ad campaign about that yeah especially when you know you can do things like just buy it when you're at a register making an impulse purchase cars are never impulse buys yeah so i understand the appeal to uh emotion which we've seen obviously in other aspects of uh uh, our country right now, emotion uh, carries more weight than fact. But uh, in terms of cars, they, they need to have, I think, a little more substance to them. Yeah, it, Alpha's going to have to spend, if they're going to keep going this way, they're going to have to spend a lot more money. I think Mazda has been doing a really good job because they have this whole Driving Matters campaign now. Yeah. And they've featured people enjoying their cars, but in real world situations. And, you know, I, I, as much as I really do love the look and the sound and the power of the new Julia, um, I can count on the, on neither hand, the number of times <laughs> I've been driving around the Stelvio pass. <laughs> you, you don't do that? Shockingly, uh, like, like I Como? don't No. Yeah. Okay. I, I haven't made any weekend jaunts over to, uh, Switzerland. Maybe that'll be our first, uh, offsite record for road trip. For yeah. I'll do a little. We'll do a little podcast school trip there. Yes. <laughs> um, so whereas Alpha's ads were uh, unabashedly Italian, uh, Buick apparently came under fire from the president of the UAW for featuring two cars in their ad, neither of which were made in the U.S. They featured the Cascadia and the. 
Encore, I believe, which are made in Poland and South Korea, respectively. Um, GM's Duncan Allred uh, responded to the nasty tweet from the UAW saying, quote, It's a very American brand. The headquarters are here and will remain so, and we're very proud of that. We always try and like to build where we sell, end quote. And it just it didn't really seem to address the concern. Well, right. I mean, because you really can't say, no, they were built here because they're built in, you know. Yeah, and, and liking to and trying to build where you sell are not the same thing as actually <laughs> going through and doing it. Yeah, I. it, it seems a misstep uh, in, in an environment where jingoism and ultra-patriotism are certainly in the public's mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh and where we can actually look up where these cars are made now, it it, it does seem to be uh, a, a little bit of a misstep. I don't know that in the end it makes a huge difference, but, you know, you you, you want to keep the UAW happy if, if they're, you know, making your cars. Absolutely, and I think Buick and certainly GM do make a lot of cars in Canada, which has a big UAW presence as well. Uh, so I understand the concern there, but... Uh, this sort of brings us on to a, a larger topic. So we're going to jump in right now to our deep dive segment. Dive, dive. So our question this week for our deep dive segment is, does it really matter where a car is built? And we can approach this from a lot of different angles. Obviously, from a jobs-providing perspective, it, it matters that cars are providing careers for people. And uh, certainly the popular uh, refrain these days is that the cars need to be assembled in the U.S. And I think I touched last week or the week before on the fact that the Toyota Camry at having at the 75% level has all of its parts uh has 75% of its parts assembled in the US and the full car assembled in Kentucky and that that Camry is the most american car on the road today and that we're we're looking at sort of a a period of time where these manufacturing jobs these assembly jobs are are leaving america but uh, is that really a problem? It, you know, moving from a, an industrial economy where you, you make things to an information economy, it, as you say, it, it does provide a, a really solid employment base. But as we were talking about earlier, there, you know, in a global economy, you can choose to make things where it makes sense economically, where it makes sense uh, business-wise, where it makes sense legally in some cases. And so, you know, we have global car brands now. That's that's not going away. And so we need to make, make peace with the fact that our cars are going to be global cars. And that even if the assembly stays in the United States, chances are it's not going to be completed entirely by human hands anymore with the advancement of robots, even if those factories 
as we've heard with uh, Ford's announcement that they're going to reinvest money that they had planned on a facility in Mexico, on a facility in Dearborn, Michigan, a lot of that is going to be automation. So there aren't going to be those jobs there that everyone's hoping for. Right. It, it, the number of jobs they were going to bring to Mexico is not the number of jobs they're bringing to Dearborn. It's going to be automated because in the U.S. it makes sense to invest in capital in, in a lot of places. So from a jobs perspective, I think it, it, to me it doesn't matter where, these, where the manufacturing jobs go because those manufacturing jobs need to be allocated to other resources. So, you know, the cars will always be sold in the U.S., so there will be jobs at dealerships. There will be jobs at repair shops. And that's a great, you know, place for a lot of these people who assembled the cars to go uh, because they have that knowledge of how the engines work and how they, how they went together. Uh, there will be jobs uh, to develop infrastructure, especially as we uh, start to develop more uh, electric vehicles, more uh, fuel cell vehicles and hydrogen infrastructure. Uh, you know, all these things will need to be built by people, and those will require uh, uh, some semi-skilled and skilled labor positions, which can be filled by those people who formerly had assembly jobs. Yeah, and, you know, as we said earlier that uh, in the Suzuki-Toyota deal, Suzuki's getting a lot of new tech, and that tech comes from a large, large chunk of change that Toyota spends on R&D every year. And so if we lose manufacturing jobs, we can gain research jobs. We can concentrate on educating our workforce to, to take those jobs. Uh, and, you know, back in the early 1900s, the U.S. car uh, industry not only built the cars here, but a lot of the raw materials came from here as well. And that just hasn't happened since the 70s. And so it's not like the the car industry uh, the car manufacturing industry going away um, is is in isolation, but we can certainly look at where the car industry is going and prepare for those jobs. I agree, and I think there's a, a lot of misconceptions about the the automotive assembly world. I I used to work with a girl who uh, who drove. I don't. I think it was a an old Buick. And it finally gave up the ghost, and she was looking for a new car. And I was suggesting, uh, you know, a lot of compact cars, mm. some hatchbacks, because I'm kind of a hatchback guy. I know. <laughs> I did not, I think, suggest any crossovers, which mm. maybe won't surprise a whole lot of our regular listeners, all one of them. <laughs> but um, she mentioned that, uh, oh, no, she couldn't look at the Toyota Yaris or the Honda Fit because she needed to have a car that was made in America. And what really just drove me up the wall is that she ended up with a Chrysler 200C, which you probably haven't looked up because nobody wanted <laughs> to buy that car at all, which is why it's no longer being offered for sale is made in Canada. Yeah. So I, I, after telling her this, she uh, sort of blushed and said, well, you know, at least it goes to an American company, which at that point, a lot of these brands are American companies. We have headquarters of Honda in Southern California, headquarters of Toyota in uh, Kentucky. Yeah. And Nissan's in Tennessee. Yeah. So, you know, those, those headquarters... Sure, the, the end money may wind up in Japan or Korea, but they're still supporting 
massive buildings full of people, full of white-collar employees who are getting the money here. Yeah, I I guess to be fair, Chrysler's uh, ad campaign did say they were imported. They are imported from, from Detroit, Detroit, which... which Across the river from yeah, Canada. Still kind of a lie. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think um, as long as we have global corporations, which, like it or not, we have them, uh, this is going to be the issue going forward. And so what part of the value chain do you want? Yeah, and I, I think American manufacturers are doing a great job of harnessing this sort of uh, ineptitude of buyers and tacking on to the fact that they will only buy certain car manufacturers that brand themselves as American. Yeah. And when we bought my wife's Fusion recently, we, we actually bought it from a Kia dealership. And I was noticing as we were waiting for all the paperwork to be done, because as a side note, I don't know why it takes so damn long to buy a car. I get that it's you know the second largest purchase you'll ever make in your life behind a house. But that there's a whole lot of paperwork that just sort of seems to be getting done somewhere over there behind a wall that that you don't touch for a couple hours. So I mean, lawyers. Yeah, lawyers. Because you got to fill out paperwork for the the dealership. You got to fill out paperwork for the the brand. You got to fill out paperwork for probably the state, federal agencies. So all cover your ass, right? Lawyers. Anyway, uh, as we were waiting for the paperwork, the nebulous paperwork to be done, we were sitting in the service area of the Kia dealership, and along a massive wall, they had a huge image of an assembly plant, I think it was in Georgia or someplace down south, and they were just beating you over the head with the fact that the Kia Soul was assembled in the United States. And while Kia may be Korean, like in very small print, we are made in the USA. So as much as American car companies do a great job of, uh, you know, playing to those people who want U.S.-made cars, even if they're not made in the U.S., they're dragging foreign manufacturers into this, like, uh, patriotism war. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's You want to support the executives or you want to support the manufacturing and either way you're supporting a company that probably employs Americans somewhere in the value chain. Well, as I think we've seen from recent elections, uh, people are only more interested in supporting the executives. Well, so. that's a choice you make. Yep. Drain that swamp. <laughs> that will uh, be it for our deep dive section. And now we're going to kick it over to our partners at the Post-Truth Channel News for an update. This is PTC News. In response to the CarSpring survey, results indicating the automotive brand retained its value least among 13 major manufacturers in Britain, Toyota is updating its marketing strategy to a more nuanced approach. Meant to appeal to the notoriously dry English humour, the new campaign, titled Up Yours, You Bloody Wankers, features Toyota UK executives rudely gesticulating towards cameras, captioned with what some have called a real excess of expletives. Toyota insists that this is purely a new marketing tactic and not a cathartic bitch-fest aimed at moronic consumers. 
One of the largest of its kind in the United States, the Chicago Auto Show kicks off this week at the convention center south of Grant Park. Organizers have pledged to host a show that they claim will be authentic to the spirit of Chicago, which means the unveiling of as many as ten cars, but also the murder of as few as six show attendees. Keen to form their own partnerships to more aggressively compete with other partnered manufacturers, Indian car company Tata has reached out to virtually every major vehicle manufacturer to propose a technical exchange. As of yet, only Kia have responded positively, to which Tata politely explained, Oh, sorry, we meant Hyundai, no offence. Additional details regarding any budding relationships will be shared as they come available. Finally this week, off the coast of Greenland, Kimi Raikkonen was spotted stand-up paddleboarding atop an overturned giant tortoise in an apparent effort to circumnavigate the globe. When reached for comment by a passing Japanese whaling vessel, Kimi allowed his spokesperson, the giant tortoise, to respond. That's all from PTC News. And that brings us uh, to this week's call to action. Now, I'm going to have Mike step in here. We've done a lot of talking this week about uh, global companies and how it doesn't really matter where you buy a car because in the age of globalization, uh, everyone benefits in some small way or another. But it's important to remember the little guy. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, it's... You know, as much as we do uh, need global companies to increase our markets and and expand our reach globally, uh, your local community really runs on small businesses that are based in your community. So uh, when you're looking for goods and services, really consider supporting uh, your neighbors that, that own businesses right there in your own neighborhood. Walk down the street, support that local store. There you go. And that's it for this week. Uh, Thank you all for listening and to Nicholas Falcon for our intro song. Thanks, of course, to my outstanding co-host, Mike Labazetta, this week. And uh, be sure to check out Faro Law Firm for all your business legal needs. Uh, We leave you today with an appeal from the Pony Cars. Here is a flat, plain crank V8 Mustang GT350 bellowing around the Nürburgring. Here is your moment of zen. (laughs) 